Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series on the Christian worldview, and here James Jordan is going to be talking about the order of the worship service, as that is foundational to how we see the world. We wanted to let you know that we at Theopolis are almost entirely supported by donors, and right now we really do believe that the world and the church need Theopolis more than ever. So if you'd like to give and support or become a Theopolis partner, I've got a link down there in the show notes for you. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you are sharpened and that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here's James Jordan discussing the Christian worldview and the order of worship. Let's talk a little bit about the order of worship that God set forth in the Old Covenant and what reasons we have for thinking that order is designed to meet the psychological needs of man and to key into certain theological truths. In the sacrifices, when they were offered, what was the first sacrifice? If you had all the various sacrifices, let's review what they are from, from a Sunday night study. There's the whole burnt sacrifice, which signifies the consecration and dedication of the whole person to God. Man brings himself, places himself before God's throne and gives himself to God. That's what Adam was to do, consecrate himself wholly to God. Now that's not acceptable anymore because of sin. And thus Jesus Christ comes and not only dedicates and consecrates himself to God, but is completely burnt up and consumed in the fire of God's judgment. But on the basis of that whole burnt sacrifice, we can come now and dedicate ourselves to him in the whole person. And connected with that whole burnt sacrifice is the cereal offering or grain offering, which signifies man's works. And so the whole man and his works are consecrated to God. And as we'll see, connected to the whole burnt offering is the incense offering, which signifies our prayers, the prayers that we make before the throne of God. So here's a group of offerings which signify the person dedicated to God in all that he is, in all that he does, in prayer before God. That's the first realm of offerings. And theologically speaking, that's the foundation. Then there's a second realm of offerings that we can talk about, those that deal with sins. And there are two kinds here. There's the purification offering, what your translation will call the sin offering. And that means that we are defiled by sin and death and we need to be cleansed. And so when a man comes to an awareness that he is defiled, or at those occasions in the Old Covenant where God appointed to remind the people that they were defiled by sin, then the sin offering is to be brought to cleanse and purge away sin. And right next to that is what the Bible calls, fifth, the trespass offering. All these different sacrifices. The trespass offering has to do with our debts. It's always paid involved with restitution and means to make it right between God and man. (coughs) So if our sin is of a particular kind, a particular kind that involves restitution, then if we were living in the Old Covenant, we would bring a trespass offering. And that's the second zone or realm of offerings, those that have to do with sin. Now, there are significant differences there, but we can't take the time for them this morning. And then third, there is the peace offering. And the peace offering has to do with fellowship and communion between God and man. When a man brought a peace offering in the Old Testament, he came with his family, and he met the priest at the door of the temple, and the priest would take the sacrifice in, kill it, 
put some of it, I, I, I think the priest was the one who killed it, burn some of it up as food for God and cook the rest of it. And then he would bring it out and the priest together with the family would sit there and share a covenant meal. At the same time, God is eating the food. The Bible speaks this way. The smoke goes up as a sweet savor or taste for God as food for God. And so there's a fellowship meal and that's the peace offering. The Passover was a variety of the peace offering. Everybody would get together and eat. Now, what comes first? Well, we have in our order of worship and the church historically, when it has been self-conscious about such things, looks at the Old Testament, looks at the Bible as a whole, and says, what is the order? Which comes first? Well, the basic order is the sacrifices for sins, the sacrifices of consecration, and then the sacrifices of fellowship and communion with God. If a man has committed a trespass, then the first thing he has to bring is a trespass offering. And we find that that order or liturgical order is set forth in Leviticus chapter 14. And uh, you don't need to turn there, but Leviticus 14, 12, and 19 show us the order. This is for the man who's a leper and who is caught up in this symbolic form of sin and death. Then the priest shall take one male lamb and bring it for a trespass offering with a pint of oil and present them as a wave offering before the Lord. And then in verse 19, the priest shall next offer the purification offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Then afterward, he shall slaughter the burnt offering. So if you have both kinds of sin offering, both the trespass and the purification offering, the trespass offering comes first. Now, what does this mean to us practically? It's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 23. He says, you may not come to worship God unless you have made things right with your brother. If, therefore, you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. The trespass offering involved restitution, normally the restitution to man or to God. And so it was a specific kind of sin. It was a debt. All the trespasses are debts. And, in fact, it's the language of the trespass offering in the Lord's Prayer when we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Whenever you talk about debt in the Bible, you're in the realm of the trespass offering. And if there is a debt, whether it's monetary or psychological, if somebody has something against you, that needs to be made right before we draw in to worship the God in his presence. Now, of course, that's not always absolutely possible because some people won't be reconciled. But at least the machinery has to be set in motion. That is, some initial move has to be made before one comes into the presence of God. And then we can come into God's presence, and the first thing we do is confess our sins. I'd like to say, then, that the trespass offering, making it right with your brother, is a preliminary to worship. It's not something we do when we get here. It's something that we do before we get here. And then when we come into God's presence, what's first? Well, the Bible repeatedly sets out the order this way, and in Leviticus 9, as I read it this morning, we see it. First of all, there's the sin offering and then the burnt offering. We could read all of Leviticus 9, but I don't want to take the time to do it. We could turn to other places in Leviticus Numbers and elsewhere in the Bible to see that when the various sacrifices are offered, always the sin or purification offering comes first. And that signifies cleansing, confession of sin, and forgiveness. 
And so when we actually come to God's house, as God prescribes the normal sacrifices in the Old Testament, first of all, there was confession of sin. That is a segment of worship, we might say. We need to spend some time on confession of sin. We need to have the confession of sin and the declaration of forgiveness there at the first. Don't do it last. You do it at the first. You don't draw into God's presence without confessing sin and dependence upon Christ. Then following the confession of sin is the consecration of the whole person, what we call in our service the offertory. And this is the whole burnt sacrifice, the whole burnt offering. And as I said in the introduction, I'll say it again now, the whole burnt offering signifies the consecration of the whole person to God. We can't do this. And yet, in Jesus Christ, we can. As it says in Exodus 32, no one shall appear before me empty-handed. And so we can't come in and say, in an absolute sense, nothing in our hands we bring. We do that when we confess our sins at the beginning. But having done that, having started out with nothing in our hands, then God puts things in our hands, including ourselves, and we dedicate ourselves to him just as Adam was to do. Now that we are restored, we must give ourselves to him. Romans 12, verse 1, offer yourselves a living sacrifice. That consecration of the whole person involves not only his person, but also his works. And so the cereal offering is attached to that. That was the problem with Cain, you know. Cain came before God's throne there at the gate of Eden with the cherubim on either side, and he presented cereal offering. He didn't present an offering for sin or a sacrifice to pay for his guilt. He simply offered his works, and his works were unacceptable. No, the cereal offering is always placed on top of the burnt offering. The man himself is offered, and then his works. And we're not offered in ourselves. We're offered only on the basis of Jesus Christ. And connected with the whole burnt offering in the Old Testament is the offering of incense. The offering of incense. And if you'd like a proof text for that, you can take Second Chronicles chapter 13, verse 11. Second Chronicles 13, 11, which says... Every morning they burn to the Lord burnt offerings and fragrant incense so that the daily morning and evening offering of the burnt offering, the consecration of the entire nation, is accompanied by incense signifying prayer. And you'll remember from sermon a couple of weeks ago that uh, Zacharias was offering incense while he was praying for a son and the angel appeared to him and answered his prayer. So the second major block in our liturgical sequence is the offering of ourselves and our works to God. It's consecration, confession and consecration. And then the third major block is communion. Confession, consecration, communion. Didn't intend that, but that's the peace offering, and it comes last. Last but not least, the climax is the wedding feast with God. Having been gotten right with God and having dedicated ourselves anew to him, then he invites us to feast with him as his bride, and we have the peace offering of communion with God. Now I'd like to make some observations on that, lest we think that this order is somehow a series of isolated segments. Let's get some general principles about our worship and why we do things this way. The order of things, and I'm going to number these observations, six observations, okay? I actually have an outline. Observation number one, the order is important pedagogically to teach us to think right. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but I'd like to repeat it a little bit. You know, when we raise our children, we don't simply sit down and give them information 
and assume that they're going to take this information in up here and then it'll soak down into here and move out into here. That's the way I was taught, you know, first in the head and then soaks down in the heart, works out into the hands. Not true. Look at all the people who sleep during sermons. In many churches, there's good gospel truth taught week after week, and then one day somebody comes and says, how come you're doing this new thing this way? And they say, well, we taught on this for week after week, but they didn't hear. So there's training that's also involved. And with our children, uh, we have a pedagogy of the sword or the rod where there's a discipline. It's not just a reinforcement of our word, but it actually trains them in how they think and how they look at the world. It trains them to fear the things that they should fear. Then there's also a pedagogy of orienting the sequence of events in life. Try to get your kids to bed at the same time every night so that they don't get all torn up psychologically and become fussy. Uh, And similarly, in God's worship, the sequence of things that we go through teaches us something. If the sequence is wrong, that will run interference with the doctrine. Run interference with the doctrine. So the sequence of things is important to teach us to think rightly, to train us to think that we can't just waltz into the presence of God and say, well, Lord, I'm here and I'm ready for communion. No. First, confess sin. can't come into God's presence and have communion with him without confessing sin. We don't come into God's presence and say, well, Lord, you created me and now I give myself to you. God says, you're unacceptable. Confess sin. Then consecrate yourself. The order, we may not think about it, but it works on us and creates a mindset which will enable us to understand the teaching. These things work hand in hand. They belong together. So the order of things is important to train us to think rightly. It's primarily one more way God has of training us for righteous thinking and righteous living. The second observation, and what I'm saying by saying that, is that the world doesn't come to an end if somebody gets the order mixed up. But it doesn't help the communication of truth if we are doing things out of sequence. The second observation is that this order and sequence of things highlights certain aspects of worship at certain points. But it's not a movement exclusively from one thing to another. It's not as if we confess sin at the beginning of the service and then, having done so, we don't think about our sinfulness ever again. We dedicate ourselves and we have communion with God and we don't reflect anymore upon sinfulness. Or it's not as if that we can come into God's presence at the beginning without being consecrated to him. Obviously, the whole service is an act of consecration to him. And obviously, the whole service is communion and fellowship with him. And so all three things are going on throughout, and yet we highlight certain things in the sequence in order to train ourselves to think properly, and because the Bible indicates that this is the proper sequence. Okay, third observation I'd like to make is that the theological order is not the same as the liturgical order. This would be real clear if I wanted to take a half an hour and start reading long passages in Leviticus to you. But you would see that when God says over and over again, he'll say to Aaron, take yourself a bull for a burnt offering and a ram for a sin offering, and go into the tabernacle and offer up the sin offering and then offer up the burnt offering. When he tells him what sequence to do it in, it's always confess sin and then consecrate yourself. But when he tells him theologically what to gather together, he always does it the other way. He always puts the burnt of sacrifice first. Why? Because nothing is possible except on the basis of the whole burnt sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His death underlies every part of the worship service. And all the sacrifices of the Old Testament were aspects 
of the one burnt sacrifice. They all flow out of it. We can say that there's one basic sacrifice, the consecration of Christ to God in his fire. And then, as we read the Old Testament, we begin to see that expands out into these other kinds. But there's one thing they all have in common. At least part of the animal is burned up on the fire. And so they're all, at least in part, burnt offerings. No man ever comes to have communion with God in the Old Testament without burning up part of it as a reminder that it's only on the basis of the death of Christ that he can have communion. Nobody ever comes to confess sin without part of it being burnt up as a reminder that Christ is a sacrifice for sin. And so thus confession of sin and dependence upon Jesus Christ undergirds and underlies everything in the service. And that's why throughout the service, repeatedly, we have confessions of sin. Repeatedly, we have expressions of dependence on Christ. We don't come in, first of all, and say, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, expressing dependence, and then confess our sin and then forget that and move on. No, the death of Christ and our sinfulness and our awareness of this permeates the service from start to finish. So the theological order is not the same as the liturgical order. We highlight the consecration and death of Christ and of ourselves at one. The death of Christ and consecration of ourselves is highlighted at one point in the service, but the death of Christ underlies every part of the service. And similarly, since every one of these things is an offering, and offerings are prayers, prayer permeates the service. Prayer is highlighted at the offering of incense. But each and every one of them is put on the altar and turned into smoke as prayer for God. And so all of them are prayers, even though prayer is highlighted at the altar of incense. So our fourth observation is, we don't just pray at one place during the offertory. We have prayers throughout. Every part of the service is suffused with prayer, but the primary aspect of prayer where we would offer the incense, the major focal point, is during the offertory in connection with the consecration of ourselves to God. And the fifth point is along the same lines. There's one thing you'll notice that I haven't mentioned as part of the service, and that's the preaching. Why? Because preaching and teaching and exhortation goes along with everything. It goes with every part. All of it is designed to teach, and instruction from the Word belongs at every part. And so, we have proclamation and exhortation all along. We come in, and we don't just confess sin. We're exhorted to confess sin, and then we confess sin. We come together at the Lord's Supper, and there's an exhortation, and there's preaching. And all along, there are exhortations and proclamations of the Word that go along with the various sections of the service. Where do we put the sermon? Well, the preeminent time of proclamation, I believe, and this is where the churches usually put it, is before the offertory. That is, just before we consecrate ourselves to God, we hear the call of God. There's the call and there's a response. And so the sermon comes right before the offertory. And we could put the sermon somewhere else. We could, you know, if maybe if we wanted to have a whole series on sin and the sinfulness of man, maybe put the sermon right at the beginning to lead us into a confession of sin, have a big sermon then and have everything else kind of short. But normally, the sermon will come right before we offer ourselves to God. Now, we're going to look at this in a little bit more detail in just a, mo in just a moment. But after we confess our sins, what do we do? We hear the proclamation of God in the law. We proclaim God's truth in the creed. 
We hear the proclamation in the sermon, and all of these things call us to consecration. And then we consecrate ourselves in the offertory. We offer ourselves and our gifts to God. God's word calls, and we respond. His word comes first, then our response. That's always the order, God's sovereign initiative. Finally, I would like to make a sixth observation, and that is in our church, we've divided the service into two parts. The morning service focuses on consecration, the offertory. The evening service focuses on communion and fellowship. These are the two things that Adam was called to do. He was called to consecrate himself and his works to God. He was called to have communion with God at the tree of life. So in the morning we have a sermon which is basically a call to consecration, a call to renewal of life, to dedicate ourselves to God. In the evening we have a sermon which is basically a call to fellowship, a call to come to the Lord's table and sit with him as his bride and fellowship with him. You see these two things and how they're set up. I want you to see the structure so that you'll understand and be better able to participate in the service. Now, let's take about ten minutes here and look at the liturgy. Would you take them out? And we'll very briefly look and see how this works out. I hope this will help you in weeks to come as we worship. The first thing we do in the morning worship service is have a call to worship. This calls us into the presence of God. That's what it's designed to do. It's not a sentimental thought. It's not a word, a unity word for today. Those of you who listen to the good radio station, except for that, it's a call to acknowledge that we are in the presence of God. And then immediately the votum, which means the vow. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That is a confession of dependence. We don't come in on our own strength right away. We declare that we are weak and our help is only in the Creator, who is not only the Creator, but the Lord, the covenant Lord, who has saved us. And then we have an opening hymn. Hymns are sacrifices of praise. Hymns can basically come anywhere in the service. You don't have to wait till we've confessed sins to have a particular kind of hymn, but uh, we will have a hymn here. Makes sense. And then we have this first part of the service, the purification offering, where we confess our sins before God. And we have a little sermon. The sermon exhorts us to come, it calls us, and then we respond with the confession of sin. And then our, we are declared free from sin on the basis of faith, and we respond by singing hallelujah. Now this is an expansion of the hallelujah. Praise God is what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord. And here the Lord is expanded into the three persons of the Trinity, and the praise is extended from the beginning unto eternity. But that's what the Gloria is. It's a hallelujah, a response of praise to the declaration of forgiveness of sins. And that, we may say, ends that part of the service. Confession of sin. We've made our peace with God, so to speak, in the purification offering. We've admitted that we're helpless and that we come as sinners. We trust only in the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we can consecrate ourselves to him. Watch how this is done in the service. God calls us to consecration, and we respond by making vows to him. We vow or make an oath of consecration to God. First of all, most of the time the law of God is read to us, and then we take an oath of allegiance to the law. Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep and enforce your holy law. That's the offertory or response of consecration an oath taken to the law of God. 
Now, this morning we all read the law of God together, so we were taking that oath entirely. The entire reading was an oath of allegiance to the law of God as we offer ourselves to him, consecrate ourselves to him. The second part of the offering that we do is a confession of faith. Let us join with the church of all ages, confessing our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. That's the call, and then we take the vow, another vow, another pledge of allegiance. That's what we're doing, consecration to God. And then third, the sermon hymn, which is designed for meditation and to lead into the sermon. Then there's the scripture lesson, another prayer to remind us of our weakness and our sin. That permeates everything we do. And then the sermon, which is the extended call of God. That's where for an hour and 20 minutes we have the call of God and then the response of man. We won't go that long today. First, we have the call of God in the sermon at length and then the response of man in the offering. And notice what we offer. First of all, we offer ourselves to God. Let us now offer ourselves to God along with our tithes and gifts. We offer ourselves and our works and then the prayers or incense offering. Now, the reason that we've switched out the doxology is the doxology is a, is a form of the hallelujah. It's not a form of a prayer of consecration. So we've substituted in a prayer of consecration. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Then you will be pleased with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. That's a prayer of consecration of the whole man or the whole person. And so we offer ourselves and our works to God, and then we offer our prayers to God. See, it conforms to the pattern that God sets out in the Bible. And there is the consecration. That's the, the extended call of God in the long sermon and the extended response of giving, placing ourselves and our works before him and offering to him prayer, the offering of incense. Now we could just go right on into the fellowship part of the service, but... Uh, since the Lord's Day is also a day of rest, and it helps things, we think, to make a break and have two separate sections of the service, we have a benediction, the Lord blesses us, and we close. Now let's look at the evening service just briefly and watch the order there. Again, we start off with a confession of sins. In a sense, we wouldn't have to. We confessed we had a confession of sin at the beginning of the morning service, so we could just continue on here into the communion. But as I said, an awareness of our sinfulness and our total dependence on Christ must permeate everything that we do in worship. And so there's a reminder, and again we confess our sins. There's a proclamation here in the exhortation. Here's some of the preaching, the call of God. God calls us to confess, but notice how it's worded. Everything here is not about consecration. Everything here is about fellowship. God calls us to eat his meal, but we must remember that we're sinful, and so we confess our sins and our dependence upon Christ, receive forgiveness, and then we sing hallelujah again. We sing a threefold hallelujah and then an expansion of the hallelujah in the Gloria and Excelsis. The glory be to God on high is a theological expansion of the hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Notice how it goes, though. Notice, turn the page over to page 8. The fourth stanza, we've been praising God, hallelujah, and then we move again into confession of sin. 
O Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, that takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. Threefold prayer for mercy and forgiveness of sin. And so again, we're reminded of sin. We continue to praise God with songs from the Scripture. And then we have again the proclamation of the Word. Now this time, it's not a call to consecration, but a call to fellowship. And so the Scripture lesson is here. We sing hallelujahs at the beginning and the end, expanded hallelujahs, glory be to God, praise be to Christ. And then we confess our faith. That is the beginning of the communion proper. What happens here? Let's look at what's actually happening in the service. On page 9, we have the sermon, we have the communion hymn to begin to move us thinking even further into what we're about to do. And do is the right word. Do this, says Jesus. We've been called to fellowship, and now we will experience fellowship. Now, at this point, we have the fencing of the table. That's what admission and excommunication means. That means that those who are permitted to come by the elders are here allowed, and some may have to be disallowed, sad to say. And now those who have been brought near confess their faith to God. And we have another confession of faith here as another vow as we have drawn closer into God's presence. Now look at page 13. This is the beginning of the fellowship part of the service proper, the thanksgiving, the communion meal between the groom and the bride. So everything here has a relevance to the peace offering. So immediately the first thing we do is we have the kiss of peace. Now... Uh, even though the kiss of peace is required about eight times in the New Testament, it's really foreign to us Western folks, and our architecture doesn't permit it. And uh, we sit, men and women all together, mixed up in the church instead of the men on one side and the women on the other. And so the church has taken the kiss of peace, which goes with the peace offering, and turned it into a mere ritual. No, turned it into an act which is liturgical in character rather than actually done. And so that's what this is. The peace of the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Beginning of the peace offering of fellowship at God's table. Then we have this expression which is known theologically as the sursum corda. Calvin's theology of worship is all built on this phrase here, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. This means think your way that you're in heaven. Remember last year when we talked about worship, we talked about how heaven opens and we become part of the heavenly host. All the angels and the departed saints are here with us and we're there with them. And John is caught up into heaven and we're up there and the Holy Spirit comes down. These are joined in worship. And so it, that's what this means. This is not something that's merely said. We're supposed to lift up our hearts and think consciously that we are now in heaven before the throne of God, even more particularly for the purpose of fellowship with him at his table. And then, let us give thanks unto the Lord our God. What is the word thanks said here? Because Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had broken it, he blessed it. Now, the word bless in the Bible means gives thanks. It doesn't mean that he held the bread and performed some type of a blessing on it and turned it into something else. And it doesn't say that he turned it into something else and then broke it which is what the Anglo-Catholics and Roman Catholics would like to believe he did. No, it says he broke it and gave thanks. That's what it means. And so, just as we have grace before meal, that's what this is. And everything from here on is grace before meal. Everything.
You'll just watch it. Everything here is either an exhortation to pray to God and give thanks, or it is the actual giving of thanks. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It's proper and right to do so. This is the prayer before the meal. And it's prayed partly by the minister and partly by all of us as priests before God. It's truly proper, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, and Everlasting God. But it is our especial duty and privilege to offer praise on this holy day of the Lord, which you have appointed for your worship. And then we have a variety of things that can be said there. We've keyed them into the church year. There's nothing absolute about that, but there they are. Therefore, in verse four, page 14, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven... There they are, we're with them and they're with us. We laud and magnify your glorious name, praising you and saying, and here's an act of adoration before the throne of God in fellowship with him. All of this is prayer. We started into prayer, we're still in prayer. Page 15, we're still in prayer. The prayer of institution. The elements are taken, our eyes are shut, so we don't see this, but God does. The minister takes the bread and wine and shows them to God that, uh, as a sign that these are in fulfillment of his command. We're now taking the bread and taking the cup, and these will be distributed in accordance with his command. These are things that man has made, and they're given to God that God might take them and give them back to us. Then we pray the Lord's Prayer. And then on page 16, we pray the Agnus Dei. This is a prayer. It's sung, but it's a prayer. We're still giving thanks before the meal. See how all of this goes together. And the point of the Agnus Dei is it's a prayer for the application of Christ's sacrifice to us. It's our salvation comes through the application of his work to us, and that's what we pray here. We pray to him not as God the Omnipotent, not as the Incarnate Son, but primarily as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we ask that his sacrifice would be applied to us. And now the prayer is ended. Grace before the meal. And here comes the fellowship meal itself now takes place in the communion. Two separate parts following the order of our Lord. And now that the service is over, we have a prayer of grace after the meal. Thanksgiving to God for the gift that he has already given. And you'll find that also in the history of the Last Supper. After they had eaten, they sang a hymn, Thanksgiving to God, and went out. So that's what these are. We start to pray again on page 17. Lord, let your servant depart in peace according to your word. And verse page 18. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. We're giving thanks. Let us pray. We give thanks to you, Almighty God. And now the service is drawing to an end. The minister says, the Lord be with you. We know that he is because he has had us to his house for fellowship. Bless we the Lord. Thanks be to God. Those two things are parallel, blessing and thanksgiving, and the benediction. So that's the order of worship, and that's why we do it the way we do. That's the order that seems to be set out in the Bible. It's definitely set out in the Bible. Confess sin, consecrate ourselves to God. Confess sin and have fellowship with God at his table. Confession of sin must undergird everything we do, because we cannot do it in our power. Adam was called to come into God's presence and consecrate himself to God. 
And he was called to come into God's presence and have fellowship with him, but he couldn't do it. Now, we are called to the same privileges, but we must come on the basis of prayer and forgiveness of sins. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.